Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose, in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble, and you surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go, and I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is the word of the Lord. It was my sophomore year in college. I experienced somewhat of a revival of faith that changed my life forever. Even though I grew up in a Christian home, it wasn't until I was in college where God really got a hold of my life through some friends I met at Chi Alpha, which is a campus ministry at Wright State. It was during this season that God started to give me new desires to know him, to live for him, to share the gospel with others. Soon I became a leader in this campus ministry. I led discussion groups, I led prayer times, I took others out to share the gospel with others. I had awesome friends, I had good relationships. People loved me, looked up to me, and in many ways wanted to be like me. I say this not to be arrogant, but to say that I was really good at putting up a fake image of who I really was. Behind the scenes, while everyone was thinking Dan is awesome, I was involved in significantly immoral and scandalous behavior. You see, I was a really good liar, deceiver, and really good at manipulating others. And these sins manifested in my life in a repulsive way through my promiscuous behavior. I kept silent about it for over a year. I deceived my closest friends and leaders into thinking that I was living in the light. Even hypocritically, I was convincing others to confess their sins and live in the light. The scary part is that because I had deceived people for so long, I was in a place where I had deceived myself into thinking that the gross sins I was committing were completely okay. Looking back, this was a scary place to be. I had gotten to a place where I justified my sin for so long that my heart was hardened. I desensitized myself to that sin. I had ignored the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and what began as a foothold for sin soon became a deep stronghold. Now, through a series of events, my sins were exposed when a good friend, Andy, confronted me. This was a shocking event for everyone in our campus ministry. 
My closest friends felt betrayed. Those that looked up to me were completely stunned. Soon the world I created came crashing down. I was asked to step down from leadership. There was a deep rupture in all of my friendships, and I was in a deep place of despair. But the Lord in his kindness was at work in my heart through all of this. He used my friends to come alongside me and help me towards repentance and restoration. I'm being honest, it took me months to even grow in awareness of my sin, to confess it and turn away from it. But the blessings that came with walking out the path of confession and repentance has been even more life-changing than the initial revival of faith I experienced earlier in college. David, the author of this psalm, once found himself in a similar position in his life regarding his sin with Bathsheba. Psalm 51, which is probably the most well-known psalm of repentance, is focused on David's confession of sin after he was confronted by the prophet Nathan. Psalm 32, which is the focus of our text this morning, is written at a later time in David's life when he looks back at this season in his life and considers the great joy and relief that he experienced when he finally confessed his sin instead of stubbornly hiding it. So before we get into this text, let me briefly summarize the story from 2 Samuel 11 that likely forms the backdrop of the instruction that David is going to give us in this psalm. So David is the king of the united monarchy in Israel. On one occasion, instead of leading his army into battle, he decides to stay home. One night, he goes for a walk on a rooftop. He sets his eyes on a woman who is bathing. Her name is Bathsheba. He finds out some information about her, learns that she is Uriah's wife, and then some, sends someone to bring her back to his place. He sleeps with her. She conceives a child. And then to cover up his sin of adultery, he brings back his husband Uriah from war and tries to deceive him to go sleep with Bathsheba, hoping that he would think that was his child. But because Uriah is loyal to his soldiers who are still in battle, he refuses to go home to be with his wife. David is out of options at this point. So he asks his commander, Joab, to put Uriah out in the front lines of the battle where the fighting is the fiercest. And he tells him to pull back from him so that he would most certainly die. And so he does. He should have confessed his sin of adultery. He should have acknowledged his sin, but he didn't. Instead, David tries to cover up his adultery with deception, which ultimately leads to his complicity in premeditated murder. He keeps silent and wonders if he has covered up his tracks pretty well. He ignores his conscience. He ignores the conviction of the Spirit until one day. The Lord, through the prophet Nathan, exposes his sin and pronounces the consequences for his sin, which are devastating for his family and for his kingship. Now, maybe this is an extraordinary situation, and it might be hard to relate to, being guilty of hiding adultery and murder. But if we're honest, we are all tempted to hide our sin. We're all tempted to ignore the conviction of the Holy Spirit and hope that it will just go away. 
But church, God loves his children too much. If you belong to God this morning, hiding your sin is futile because he wants something better for you. David in this psalm wants to show us from his own life that it is a painful thing to live under the weight of unconfessed sin. But there is great joy and relief, freedom from guilt and shame when we confess our sin and experience the blessings of forgiveness. The main point of the psalm is simply this. Endless joy awaits those who confess their sins. So let's walk through this psalm verse by verse and learn from David as he looks back upon his life and he encourages us to learn the lessons that he learned the hard way. That endless joy awaits those who confess their sins. David begins the psalm in the first two verses by declaring, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. Right at the start, David wants us to grasp this amazing blessing, a blessing that is a gift of grace for a person to be forgiven by a holy and just God. Notice the words that David uses here for sin, transgression and iniquity. These are not words that he simply uses to refer to our sinful condition, but he's referring to words that convey willful rebellion against God, breaking his commandments, going against his revealed law. So, someone who breaks God's law rightly deserves to be punished. That is why David breaks out and prays, not only because his sins are forgiven, but there is no longer any record of it. Now, this is in sharp contrast to human forgiveness, isn't it? Which can often be frail and old sins are often drudged up. When God forgives, he forgives completely. We can have full assurance that he has put away our sin immediately and eternally. This is the stunning reality that David wants us to consider in this psalm. Another thing to notice in these verses is that the one who is being forgiven is described as one in whose spirit there is no deceit. David is not saying that the confessing sinner is sinless. Obviously, that would not make any sense. Rather, he's describing the importance of genuine confession. In contrast to confessing with some sort of ulterior motive or deceitful motivation, he's basically saying that total and complete forgiveness is available to those who honestly confess their sins to God. Now, while that may be true, David, like us, was tempted at times to hide his sin. Verse 3. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. The temptation to keep silent and hide our sins is not unique to David. It is a human condition that we have all inherited from our father, Adam. In the garden, after Adam and Eve sinned, it says that they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Now, this is something we can all relate to, can't we? Why do we keep silent? Why do we hide our sin? 
Even when we know clearly from Scripture that God is merciful and gracious and forgiving. Well, sin in its essence is irrational behavior. We often deceive ourselves into thinking that we're going to be better off by hiding our sin. There's also a fear of coming into the light because of fear of consequences of sin. We don't want to deal with it. We're worried about our reputation, what others might think. We're worried about the guilt and shame. But see, that's the thing. Satan wants us to focus on these lesser consequences. And he wants to keep us from the joy of returning to the Lord who is ready and willing to forgive. Have you ever hid your sin for a long period of time? I I certainly have. And did it just eat at you from the inside? It wasn't good to carry that weight, was it? David says here that he felt it in his bones and he groaned all day, just trying to justify his sin and keep it hidden. Sam Storms says this, If you bottle up your sin in your soul, it will eventually leak out like acid and eat away at your bones. Unconfessed sin is like a festering sore. You can ignore it for a while, but not forever. But even when we are stubborn, which we all are at times, God does not leave his children stuck in sin. He is a deliverer, and he comes to rescue those who are stuck in sin. Sometimes he comes to us through another person to warn us. Sometimes it's through his word that he exposes our sin. But oftentimes, even when we hide from others, even when we neglect his word, his spirit is at work, bringing conviction, beckoning us to confess our sin and to return to him. David describes it this way. Verse 4, For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. God was at work day and night calling David to return. He felt weak physically and spiritually. He was exhausted because God's hand of discipline was upon him, calling him to something better. He wanted David to experience forgiveness. He wanted David to no longer carry the weight of guilt and shame, and he wanted him to experience the blessing of forgiveness. But since David refused to confess his sin on his own, God, in his kindness, sent a prophet to confront him. David was sent Nathan. I was sent a good friend, Andy, all in God's kindness and mercy to draw his wayward children back to himself. Now, if you are in a place of hiding this morning, I hope that you can sense the Lord calling you to come into the light even now. He is not going to condemn you. He wants to have mercy on you. Because his patience and his kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. Now, after being confronted by Nathan, David immediately confesses his sin and he returns to the Lord. And he says this in verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Even after a period of hiding in sin, 
living in darkness. Notice what happens when David confesses his sin. God immediately forgives his sin. Because of God's kindness, even when we are stubborn, as long as we confess our sin, we are forgiven. Isn't that amazing? 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We confess, He forgives. Immediately and eternally. It's that simple and that amazing. All right. Break, break. Now, the first five verses, David here is describing the te- his testimony of how he once hid in his sin, suffered under the discipline of God, but when he finally confessed his sin, he experienced the joy of forgiveness. In the second half of the psalm, David, after having learned his lessons, turns to us, and he instructs us not to make the same mistakes that he made. Look at the first part of verse 6. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at the time when you may be found. David calls on the godly to confess their sin when God may be found. A couple of things to notice here. He calls sinful people, specifically those who have sinned and need to confess, as godly. Did you notice that? How does that even make sense? Now, the biblical testimony is that godly people are not those that do not sin, for all have sinned. But the godly are those that belong to God, those that live in the light and regularly confess their sin. This is the paradox of the Christian life that Luther describes as Christians are simultaneously righteous and sinful at the same time. On the one hand, we are made godly and righteous through the righteousness of Christ, but at the same time, we still sin as we wait for our final redemption. David's point here simply is that those who are godly, meaning those who belong to God, are those that confess their sins. It is one of the marks of a child of God. The second thing to notice here is that David instructs the godly to offer a prayer of confession when God may be found. Now, he's not talking about God's availability as if God can be found sometimes and not at other times. Rather, he's instructing us to confess our sins immediately when God convicts us before his hand of discipline comes down swiftly upon us. In the second part of verse 6, he vividly describes God's judgment as a rush of great waters. It says this, Surely in a rush of great waters they shall not reach him. Those who hide their sin are in jeopardy of being under God's judgment, which is like a rush of great waters that will overwhelm us if we hide in our sin. But... David is saying that if we confess our sins, if we offer that prayer of confession when God convicts us, we are protected. We're given refuge from God's judgment. In the following verses, David continues to describe the many other blessings that come with confessing our sin. Verse 7 says, You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. God becomes our hiding place. 
when we confess our sin. He preserves us from trouble, becoming our protection from the evil one. He keeps us from worrying about what other people might think about us, and he fills our mouths with praises to God who has delivered us from our sin. Notice in this verse how David's location has moved from hiding in sin to hiding in God. When you are hiding in sin, you are exposed. You are vulnerable to a hardened heart. You're vulnerable to the deceitfulness of the enemy and the eventual judgment of God. But when God becomes your hiding place, our refuge, we readily confess our sins because we know they are forgiven. We know they are covered and they are not remembered anymore. That's amazing. That is good news. Look at what else is promised to those who confess their sin. Verse 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. God promises to instruct his children, to lead us, to guide us, to counsel us with his eye upon us all the days of his life. Do you sense his personal care for you? You might be here wondering what would happen if you actually confessed your sin. Maybe there's a fear of coming into the light. Maybe there's a fear of consequences. Well, God's promise here to the confessing sinner is don't worry about that. I got you. I will instruct you. I will guide you. I will make every provision for you to be restored and living in freedom. Even still, some may not heed this instruction. Look how David instructs those in verse 9. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. David warns us not to be like a horse or a mule. These are animals that have to be controlled with a bit and bridle just to make sure that they stay on the path. Now, God will do whatever is necessary to make sure his children persevere until the end, and that is a gift. But David here is encouraging us to have a willing spirit that confesses our sin immediately, quickly, instead of having God resort to harsher means to expose our sin. There are certainly periods when a child of God can act like a mule. I certainly have. But God is calling us not to take his discipline lightly because his discipline is a sign of his love and his affection for us. Is this you today? Let me encourage you personally from the book of Hebrews. Well-known passage. It says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who have disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? 
For they, our fathers, disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But God disciplines us for our good, so that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Yes. Yes. Discipline is painful initially. But God promises that it will yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness if we endure through it. David concludes with a final warning and encouragement in verse 10 and 11. He says, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord. Rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. The wicked in these verses are not sinners per se. The wicked here are unrepentant sinners. Those that hide their sins and reject the call to repent from their sins. The righteous here described and the upright at heart in this verse are not referring to sinless people, but those that are walking regularly in confession and repentance. Isn't that crazy? That we've been given a new identity? Even though we sin, we are called righteous and upright in heart? If we confess our sins, all of it because of God's grace, all of it. Now, not only that, but we're also promised in these verses the gift of God's steadfast love that will always surround us, never leaving us, never forsaking us. David here is overcome with these spiritual blessings that belong to the children of God, and he calls us to be glad. He says, rejoice. What else can we do but shout for joy? Our sins have been forgiven. Our chains are gone. We have been set free. Now, we often take it for granted that God forgives sins. We think it is something he's obligated to do. It is certainly not something he's obligated to do. Because we have sinned against a holy God, we are owed his judgment because he is just. But because God is love and because he is merciful and because of his everlasting love towards his children, at the right time, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to reconcile guilty sinners like us back to God. He did this by becoming a man living a righteous life on our behalf. He never had any need of forgiveness because he never sinned. Yet, on the cross, he bore our wrath, taking upon himself the penalty for our sin. Not only that, but on the third day, he rose from the grave, assuring our salvation. And even now, Jesus intercedes on our behalf before the throne of God ensuring that the mercy and grace that he purchased for us on the cross are poured out on us when we sin so that our sins are covered, so that we can come to him and find grace and mercy in time of need. Now, let me just conclude by talking to three different groups of people that might be here this morning that 
the Lord laid on my heart as I was preparing this message. First, I want to speak to those who might be hiding in sin today. David's encouragement here is sobering, but it is full of hope. There is something better available for you. There is joy unspeakable. There is freedom from guilt and shame. There is a burden of your sin being lifted. There's endless joy and renewed fellowship with God available if you confess your sins. This is what the wisdom of Proverbs promises for the concealer of sin versus the confessor of sin. It says, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. I know this can be a scary thing to do, but I would encourage you to confess your sin to the Lord. And then confess your sin to another believer who you trust, who can help walk with you through what might seem to be a fearful path, but ultimately will lead to blessing and joy. Our prayer as pastors here is that we would have a culture of such grace and mercy that we would be glad and eager to walk alongside anyone who is stuck in sin and to restore one another in gentleness. Now, you do not have to confess to your pastor. We, we don't hold the keys to your absolution. There is one mediator between God and man, and his name is Jesus Christ. So come to him this morning. Confess your sin. Receive forgiveness. Listen to the words of Isaiah as he encourages us similarly. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon his name while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. That's the goal. That's the goal. That he may have compassion on him and our God, for he will abundantly pardon. The second group of people I want to talk to today is those that need to practice confession of sin. I hope that you were able to see through this text this morning what an amazing blessing it is and what the amazing blessings we receive when we confess our sins. We receive complete forgiveness, the promise of protection, the gift of being led and guided by God, the promise of always being surrounded by His steadfast love. Yet, confession of sin is something that we are not very good at doing regularly. For some reason, we think confession of sin is something we do only when we commit big sins, whatever those are. We often reserve it for those big sins and think that all the regular sins are just kind of generally covered. The reality is that we regularly fall short of God's command, and we are in regular need of confession and repentance. Let me use an illustration Confession of sin is kind of like your routine car maintenance, right? So your car maintenance, your routine maintenance is something that is done that is planned and regular. The reason it's planned and regular is that it prevents significant problems when you could potentially have equipment failure if you don't do that. 
So for example, your oil change is something you do every three to 6,000 miles, and you do that to prevent something bad happening to your engine, right? So what happens if you don't get your oil change done in time? I know someone here knows what happens when you don't get your oil change done in time, but you could have catastrophic equipment failure, right? And getting an oil change once your engine doesn't work anymore makes no sense at all. Similarly, confession of sin ought to be planned and regular, part of our individual and corporate prayers, so that we can enjoy sweet fellowship with God and with one another. So how often, if an oil change is to be done every three to 6,000 miles, how often should we confess our sins? Well, Jesus himself taught us to pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. It should be a regular part of your prayers. So I would, I would submit to you, it should be a daily practice for believers as we come before God. If you struggle in this area like I do, let me encourage you to begin confessing your sins daily and specifically, even if they might seem small to you. There's no need to manufacture sins to repent of. That's not what I'm saying here. But God's Spirit will convict you as you read His Word, as you pray as you listen to his word preached together, as you live together in community with one another. Or you could just get married. That will give you plenty of things to confess your sins to the Lord too. But the good news this morning is that those who regularly confess their sins before God can walk before God with a clear conscience. And we get to experience a deeper grace and a deeper joy and a deeper fellowship with God. Don't miss out on what the Lord has for you. Now, finally, let me also, I'm aware that there are those among us who are very aware of their sin and always feeling guilty all the time. I know that some of you constantly sit under the weight of your failures and sins. Now, while I'm encouraging us to regularly confess our sins, I'm not saying that everyone needs to walk around feeling guilty all the time. And in fact, the fact that you feel guilty all the time does not mean that you are holier because you take your sin more seriously. It could mean that you do not embrace the good news that all your sins have been forgiven completely. Christians, even those that are aware of their sin, ought to be joyful, filled with gratitude and thankfulness because our loving God, He has done everything necessary to reconcile us to Himself and to cleanse us. So trust Him. Trust His promises of complete forgiveness. Back in college, when my sins were exposed, there were consequences stepping down from leadership, humbling myself, asking several people I had sinned against to, uh, to, to ask them to forgive me, trust being broken, relationships damaged, consequences felt until even today. David himself shared his, David experienced his share of consequences in his family when his sins were exposed. But when I look back upon 
that season of my life, I can only see God's goodness and his kindness towards me. It has filled me with thankfulness and praise. He has taken away my guilt. He has cleansed me from my shame. And he has unshackled me from the bondage of sin. Since that day, I've had more room in my heart for praise, more room in my heart to serve him. It's amazing what God can do in your life if you confess your sin. I can testify to you, along with David, who also learned these lessons the hard way, that endless joy awaits those who confess their sins.